Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to your weekly sermon here that we're recording during the pandemic for Covenant Hope Church. I'm glad you're listening in, and I hope you're blessed and encouraged as we continue through the Psalms of Book 4 in the Psalter, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, Book 4 is a group of Psalms that are largely about the King who is the Lord. And so this afternoon, I hope you're encouraged. Before there were uh, printing presses or email or WhatsApp or websites, news would be announced to the people of a country or a city or a town by someone called a town crier. Many cultures and countries around the world actually for ages have used someone like a town crier from ancient Rome to tribes in West Africa. In West Africa, the town criers would use drums to gather people around them before they made the announcements of the king or the chief. In England and throughout Europe, town criers would be dressed in fancy clothes and they would ring a bell, calling people to come to them. Hear ye, hear ye, they would say. And as the people gathered them, they would announce something that the ruler or the leader had to communicate to his people. Oftentimes it was a a new command or a new law, perhaps, that he wanted to be followed. Sometimes it was an invitation to some big event that the ruler was putting on that he wanted the people to attend. When they did gather, they would hear what the king wanted them to know, important information. The writer of our Psalm 96 is like a town crier for the kingdom of God and for the king himself, in fact. He's calling different groups to recognize and pay attention to the Lord who is king. He's commanding, even inviting, a proper response to the king of creation. Let's turn to Psalm 96 in our Bibles and give this Davidic town crier our attention. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Psalms. Psalms are in the Old Testament. And again, we're in Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Follow along with me. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. And then all the 
trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, You are robed in majesty and glory and honor. You're filled with strength and power. You're holy and beautiful, and yet we need our eyes opened by the revelation of your word. Oh Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Open our hearts to see you and then prompt us to sing your praises so that our hearts may be filled with joy and all the people of the earth will know that you are our glorious King. In Christ's name, amen. My sermon this afternoon is going to be three points. And the first point is this, sing to your king, church. Sing to your king, church. That's verses one through six. The second point is worship the king, all nations. Worship the king, all nations. That's seven through nine. And the third point is rejoice in the king, all creation. Rejoice in the King, all creation. Verses 10 to 13. We're on to the next of our royal psalms that focus on the Lord's kingship and His reign in book four of the psalms. Last week, the psalmist called us to worship the King and be warned by the King. And this week, in Psalm 96, the psalmist is calling the church and then the nations and then all creation to sing worship, and rejoice in King Jesus. The psalmist, of course, is none other than King David, who lived about a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. King David was originally a shepherd of sheep. (laughs) He was a poet and a songwriter. He was a musician. He was a warrior. And eventually, he was one of the greatest kings of Old Testament Israel. Now, there's no heading that attributes the psalm to him, but an almost identical song was sung by King David when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, and that song is written in 1 Chronicles 16. The ark, of course, was that gold-covered box that carried the words, the book of the covenant that God had given to the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt and the manna that he had given to them and the staff that Moses had held and performed many miracles by. So that ark, when it was brought into Jerusalem and King David was the one who did that, he sang this song. He sang this psalm, in fact. And so if you turn there and you see that song, you'll see that it's almost word for word what's in Psalm 96. Bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem represented the Lord himself taking the throne in his capital city of Jerusalem. And so this psalm is a song sung by the earthly king of Israel, calling his people to sing and worship and rejoice in really what was the enthronement of the true and ultimate king of Israel and the whole earth for that matter, the Lord. For us, the first six verses are a command. Sing to your king, church. Sing to your king, church. Three times we're called to sing to the Lord 
in those first two verses. Sing, 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 he says. Now, you might be getting a little tired of hearing me talk about the importance of singing for Christians and for the church, especially when we're preaching through the Psalms. But you might want to brace yourself because almost a third of all 150 Psalms contain a reference to singing. The Psalms are songs, and they're meant to be sung. All, creation, all Christians everywhere and in every place should be singing Christians. I loved hearing recently a mighty choir backed by a gigantic pipe organ thunder God's praise at a church when Joanne and I were back in the United States in June. We attended a church there and got to hear that. As much as we loved singing songs without any kind of instrumentation under a tree with five other Maasai tribesmen back in 1987. One very grand setting and one very humble setting. Each one was singing with Christians, singing with Christians. Christians have and always will sing. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, we will continue to sing. Now, the first thing that we're called to do in the psalm is to sing a new song. We're supposed to sing a new song, not because the Lord gets bored with our old songs, but because our praise of God should come from a fresh revelation or a daily encounter with God. New songs sometimes highlight new aspects of the gospel or scripture, or they remind us of old truths with fresh words, maybe a new melody. You might notice that at Covenant Hope Church, we try to occasionally teach you new songs from time to time. In fact, I have decided that it's probably best for us to learn maybe five, maybe six new songs in a year. You know, it's hard for a church to sing new songs every week. We need to get used to those songs. So instead, we sprinkle those new songs from time to time throughout the year, maybe every two months, to awaken our hearts and our minds with those new words and those new melodies, new choruses, uh, new verses that extol the Lord and proclaim the truths of Scripture. Now, sometimes we'll introduce to you actually an old song, maybe from the 1800s or the 1700s or even the 1600s. It's, a new, it's an old song that you might not know very well, and so for you then it would be a new song. <laughs> but that, what's even more important than which songs we sing and the frequency with which we bring in new songs is what we're to sing about in any of the songs that we sing. Look with me there at the end of verses 2 and 3. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Tell of His salvation, declare His glory, declare His marvelous works. Perhaps David would have been singing songs about how the Lord led he and Israel to defeat Goliath and the Philistines, as recorded in 1 Samuel. In fact, after he won that battle, after they won that battle against the Philistines, the women of Israel came out and sang a song about David defeating Goliath. Or maybe David 
would be recounting the first great act of salvation in Israel's history, the time when God put the plagues on the Egyptians and he led out his people Israel into the wilderness and led them to miraculously cross through the Red Sea whose waters had been parted. That's salvation in an Old Testament sense. God saved the nation of Israel from slavery and certain destruction many, many times. And so that's really the kind of salvation that David would have been thinking about. But we're not Old Testament Israel, are we? We've inherited the promises of God from that particular time, the promises that God had given to them. They, of course, had the gospel preached to them in a an Old Testament form, but we're the church and we're the people who have been saved from slavery to sin and eternal destruction by the work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the salvation that we proclaim. And we should never tire of telling the world about God's work of salvation in our lives from day to day today. That's why you might be asked to tell your story of how you came to Christ in your Friday Zoom group. That's why we ask people to tell their testimony before we baptize them. We want them, we want you to know how to proclaim your salvation from day to day. Someone who can tell of the Lord's salvation from day to day is someone who's comfortable with it. They want to get to the point where they don't feel the need to maybe have it even written down on paper before they can tell their story. Now, that's okay if that's where you start. But, oh, friends, I would pray that that's not where you end and not where you get to. Are you comfortable telling the story of your salvation? Would you like to be at a place where you cared less about how you sounded or whether or not you stumbled over different words and you cared more about being faithful and boldly representing your Savior with regular sharing of the gospel in your testimony, ask the Lord to give you confidence. He will. And begin putting it into action. The only way to get comfortable in telling your story of salvation is to start. Begin doing it. Sometime this week, in fact, I want to encourage you to ask someone who've who you've never shared your gospel testimony with, if you could tell them about how you became a Christian. Tell them the testimony of coming to faith in Christ and tell them that your pastor challenged you to do it and that's why you're doing it. And then I want you to come back to me this coming week, next week, and tell me how it went. I wanna be praying. I wanna be praying that Lord might use it, might use it to spark interest in a colleague or a family member's interest in the gospel. If you're a parent, perhaps you've never shared your testimony with your children, and maybe that's a good place to start. Many of you have young infants even right now. Oh, don't wait until they know how to speak. Hold them in your arms and tell them how you met Jesus. You'll get used to it. It'll be comfortable, and you'll begin to confidently share of your salvation from day to day. Now, verses four and six contrast how great and glorious the Lord is in comparison 
to the gods and idols that so many others in the world worship. The Lord is great, and the idols of the people are worthless. That's right, worthless. In ancient Israel, the idols of the nations that surrounded them would have been represented by physical statues that craftsmen had made or shrines that had been built. And that's true today, of course, in many places of the, in the world and among many peoples. But if you're not a Christian, you may be thinking to yourself, listen, I, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't worship idols. In fact, you may consider yourself an atheist. You may say you don't even think that a God exists in the world. Now, when we use the term idol, we as Christians mean more than shrines that people have built or fashioned with their hands or statues that have been carved and that people bow down to. We mean more than that. We understand an idol to be anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to have give you what only God can give you. That's an idol in the modern sense of the term. And that is a definition that is taken from author Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. So you see, even atheists have idols based on our definition Perhaps atheists of all people have idols because they have things in their life that they, in effect, worship. They look to them to provide meaning and pleasure. Your idol could be your career. Your idol could be your money. Maybe even your hobbies are the things you look to to provide meaning for you. Your idol could be sex. Or maybe all of those things could be idols to you. I know before I became a Christian, I had many idols in my life. Now, none of those things that I've just listed are bad in and of themselves. But when we make things or pursuits or pleasures like those things ultimate in our lives, they become idols. And idols are worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of God. Idols haven't made anything, but God made everything. That's what the psalmist tells us in verse 5. That's his simple rebuttal to these worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Idols are created, but the Lord is the creator. Not only did the Lord create everything, demonstrating His power and His knowledge but the Lord is the most glorious and beautiful thing that is worthy of our singing and our praise. Look with me at verse 6 for just a moment. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Have you considered the beauty and the splendor the majesty and the strength of God? Have you meditated on it? You have to use your imagination and you have to be guided by Scripture, of course, but thinking about how beautiful God is works to slowly break the spell and the allure of what the world holds us in so oftentimes. 
The only reason, of course, that there is beauty in the world is that the one who made it is beautiful. Mountain vistas captivate us. Lush green forests make us sigh with relief and rest. We never get tired of seeing the rainbow of colors at the sunset. We never get weary of looking out of the window of a plane and seeing the clouds float by. It's beautiful. In fact, when I walk through the room and there on the screensaver that runs on my television, there's a picture of a field with row after row after row of radiant yellow and red tulips. I can't help but stop and stare. And I wonder, where is that? I want to go there. I want to see that. Beauty draws us in. Beauty and splendor and majesty are deeply satisfying to us. We recognize and we're drawn to beauty because we are designed to be drawn to and into the beauty and splendor of God. We're designed to see Him and to worship Him. C.S. Lewis said about our appreciation for beauty, we do not want merely to see beauty though. God knows even that is reward enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Now we worship God, the beautiful God, by faith. We can't see Him literally, but one day we will worship Him by sight. But now it requires the eyes of faith to picture the Lord full of splendor and majesty, strength and beauty. You know, it wouldn't hurt us to look down to verse 9 and see that the Lord's splendor is mentioned again. And this time it's in reference to the splendor of His holiness. Christians must be consumed with the infinite beauty of God's holiness. Jonathan Edwards said, He that sees the beauty of God's holiness sees the greatest and most important thing in the world, which is the fullness of all things, without which all the world is empty, no better than nothing, yes, worse than nothing. Unless this is seen, nothing is seen that is worth the seeing, for there is no other true excellency or beauty. Of course, brothers and sisters, these verses are true of Christ Jesus. When we tell of our salvation from day to day, we tell about Jesus. When we think about creation, we remember that Christ is the one through whom and for whom all things were made, as it says in Colossians. And Jesus, Jesus is the glorious one, the majestic one, the beautiful one, full of power and strength. In that amazing chapter, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the Old Testament, Isaiah had entered the temple of the Lord and he saw the Lord glorious and lifted up. And the majesty of God filled the temple. The Apostle John, in the book of John, tells us that what Isaiah saw was Jesus. We sing to Jesus. We declare Jesus, and we will stand in awe and wonder of Jesus' glory and beauty. 
But Jesus didn't come just for us. He came for the nations as well. He came for all peoples. And that's who the psalmist invites us to invite into worship in verses 9, 7, 8, and 9. We can title these verses, Worship the King, All Nations. Worship the King, All Nations. So like the first few lines of the psalm, this section begins with a volley of three commands or invitations. See it there in verses 7 and 8. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Now, ascribe isn't a word that I use very often. It's probably not a word you use very often as well. The New Living Translation translates for these verses, O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory He he deserves. So to ascribe to the Lord is to recognize and credit to the Lord what He's due. And when we're calling to people of the world to ascribe, we want them to do that. We're saying, recognize the Lord's qualities. Oh, people of the world, oh, nations, recognize who He really is. The psalmist is calling all people, not just Israelites, to recognize God as the true glorious King that's worthy of everyone's worship. That's right. God wants everyone to worship Him. If you're not a Christian, I want to be clear. We're inviting you. We are urging you to worship Jesus Christ. We don't want you to just think that Jesus was a great moral teacher. We don't want you to simply consider him one in a long line of prophets sent from God. We don't even want you to simply admire his love and kindness. Jesus is so much more than that. And to settle for any of those responses to him is to fall short of what verse 8 says, the glory due his name. Jesus deserves more. Jesus deserves your worship. And so no matter what religious background you come from, we are announcing to the world that Jesus is the true king, the only king, the one that you were designed to worship. Think of it this way. If you were to meet the ruler of Dubai, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, face to face, you would never consider calling him or addressing him anything less than Your Highness. To address him simply as Hey Mohammed or Mr. Mohammed would be a great insult, and you know it. How much more of an insult to the glorious King Jesus to think of him as simply a moral teacher or or another prophet from God like all those who came before. But let me tell you where this king is different from all the other leaders that you're familiar with. What this king offers is forgiveness for your sins and grace for your failings. He offers eternal life and the right to be called a child of God. No other leader No other God offers that. Verse 8 says to bring an offering and come into his courts. But you and I 
had no offering to come into his courts. We had no right to be there. We were sinful and he was holy. Our good deeds are like filthy rags if we try to bring them to him. Our efforts to be righteous continuously fail. But King Jesus says, come as you are. I will provide the offering. And that is exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. The God-man Jesus shed his blood as payment for our sins so that we might come and receive grace and forgiveness absolutely free. What could we bring to this king? Every other idol, every other God requires that you bring a sacrifice. But this God, this God offers the sacrifice himself so that you and I can come to him. You have only to acknowledge your need. We admit our sin against him. We acknowledge our debt. And then this king pays the debt that we owe. And that is the good news of the gospel. That's the good news. That's the invitation that we give to all peoples of the world, all families of the nations. Come to this king who provides his own offering so that you can come to him. As a church, we tell of his salvation day after day, and we invite others to respond to him in faith. Evangelism is incomplete if we just tell what God's done in our lives. Missions fails and falls short if we just say, Jesus is Lord. That's true. But there's more that needs to be said. Evangelism must include an invitation to respond in repentance and faith toward King Jesus. If you've shared your testimony of coming to faith in Christ, ask your friend, what do you think of Jesus? I want to ask you, have you explained that anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ will receive eternal life? Not just people that grew up in a Christian family. No, anyone. J.I. Packer says of evangelism that it is a task appointed to all God's people everywhere. It is the task of communicating a message from the Creator to rebel mankind. The message begins with information and ends with an invitation. The information concerns God's work of making His Son a perfect Savior for sinners. The invitation is God's summons to mankind generally to come to the Savior and find life. That's from J.R. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I commend it to you as an excellent resource. Do you see in this Psalm of David, God's heart for missions and evangelism, even here in the Old Testament? Missions and evangelism is not just a New Testament thing. Israel was a nation whose king was the Lord, and all the nations around them were to understand who God was by observing Israel and how they lived for God. But now that Christ has come, God's people, the church, are to take the gospel and to go out. And so it's no longer come and see as it was during the time of national Israel. It's go and tell about King Jesus. 
God desires all people everywhere to come and receive the forgiveness that only He can offer. He designed all people to worship Him, to know Him, to be received by Him. When Christ commissioned the apostles, He said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And then later, not too many days later, on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus' apostles and disciples were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem. Of course, people from all over the world, many, many different countries, had come to Jerusalem for this particular feast. What did the people from a multitude of nations hear from the mouths of these Spirit-filled apostles? Acts 2.11 We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Just what the psalmist has told us to tell in verses 1 and 2. The mighty works of God. Peter then preached the gospel and the people were cut to the heart and they asked, what shall we do? And Peter invited them. He gave the invitation to give the Lord the glory due His name by telling them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is the King of all people, and He calls all people to worship Him. Brothers and sisters, missions and evangelism are for every Christian. They're for every church, not just for churches that are particularly interested in the world. No, the heartbeat of God is for the gospel to go out to the nations, and so the heart people, heartbeat of God's people should be the same. That's why we support missions. That's why we pray for the world. That's why we would love to see people raised up from in, inside even our own church body and sent out to the nations to share the gospel, perhaps to your own home country or perhaps to another. Missions is at the heartbeat of every Christian. But even creation will be involved in celebration of the reigning King Jesus when He comes to judge and rule us in the future. And we see that in verses 10 through 13, where there's an invitation to rejoice in the King, all creation. Rejoice in the King, all creation. That's the third point this afternoon. Verse 10 begins with God's people continuing to proclaim Him as the reigning King among all the nations of the world. You may remember, actually, this particular line, the second line of verse 10, because it was also in Psalm 93 as well. Those lines are identical. It says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Now, it's interesting and important to understand that there was a time in the history of the church when it was believed that this verse meant that the earth was at the center of the universe and that it remained absolutely motionless. And then the scientists Copernicus 
and later Galileo discovered that the Earth rotated on its axis, and then the Earth, as it was rotating, would orbit around the Sun once per year. They discovered that. And so they and their theories were then condemned by the Roman Catholic Church because they thought it to be in contradiction to what verses like this one say. But the church was wrong in their interpretation of the verse. The verse doesn't mean that the earth is motionless. It means that the earth won't be changed from what God has set for it. It's unchanging and obedient to God and God only, even as the nations and the rebellious people rage against God. It's in that sense that the earth is fixed. We also know that Scripture says that God will recreate the heavens and the earth at the end of time, and so that alone should tell us that the earth isn't entirely immovable or unchangeable. It's only changeable by God. That's what this verse means. Oftentimes, we look at the Scriptures with our modern scientific questions, but the first step in interpreting Scripture is to understand the immediate context of a verse and determine what issues the verse or verses are addressing first and foremost for the original readers. What did the original readers need to hear from the writer? All of Scripture is without error and true, of course, but it's important to remember that it's true and without error in what it's intended to say and mean, not just what we want it to say and mean. And so we can't force Scripture to answer questions that it wasn't written to answer. The world is established, of course, because the Lord, who is king, is in control of it. But the psalmist, most of all, wants to draw our attention to the fact that this king will come to judge the people of the earth with equity. That means with fairness. And the response of all creation will be rejoicing. We're told that this King Jesus, this king is going to judge the peoples in verse 10 and then again twice in verse 13. It says he's going to judge. The Lord's judging means his rule of the nations here, his governing of the world. It will be righteous and fair. It will be good and welcome. It will bring peace. Oftentimes when we think of God's judgment, even in the psalm that we considered last week, Psalm 95, the sense of judging and judgment that we saw there was uh, retributive. In other words, punishment, the punishment for the wicked. But there's also another side of God's judging that will happen and continue on in the new heavens and the new earth, even after the wicked have been judged and punished. His judgment of the nations after that, his judgment over us, has a gracious feel to it, a gracious tone. It's the law of love being enacted and carried out for eternity among us under his rule. It's positive here, this sense of judging, I believe. And we know that from the tone of the whole psalm. And he says, uh, the psalmist says as well, that he will rule over us because of his faithfulness, because he keeps his promises. Do you long to live in a world like that? Do you long to live in 
peace like that, brothers and sisters? Aren't you tired of sin and its destructiveness in your own life and the lives of those around you? We were made to live under God's perfect and just royal rule. In fact, everyone was designed and made to live for that. We're weary of dealing with sin. Our own sin, the sin of the people around us as well. We long for a better place. We long for a perfect world. There's not a single person on the planet that I think would tell you they long for that kind of place. That longing is in us. It's put there by God. It's an indicator that we were created to live under the Lord's perfect rule. Forgive me if I quote C.S. Lewis one more time. He said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You and I were made for living in this world that's been recreated. That's the other world that C.S. Lewis is talking about. It's the world under God's perfect, just rule. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that that is coming. It's been promised. Those last four verses of Psalm 96 point to it. It says, he will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge in righteousness. He is coming. Verse 13, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. It still lies before us in the future. We're waiting for it. The Lord Jesus promised that he will come again, but his second coming will be as a judge and ruling king, not a suffering servant. And the Apostle John, at the end of his life, saw a vision of that glorious day when Christ would return to rule us with equity and righteousness. And so it says, recorded in Revelation 21, that Christ was seated finally on his throne as our king. And he says to John in the vision, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. What a hope we have, church. When our king returns, we rejoice and praise him. But we won't be the only ones. All creation will rejoice, as the psalm tells us. You see, our sin brought not only death and slavery to us, the entire creation was cursed. When Adam sinned, as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, creation was committed and trapped in futility. Romans 8 tells us that creation has been waiting and longing for Christ's perfect rule. Paul told the church at Rome in chapter 8 of his letter to them, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Both in Romans 8 and here in our psalm, the creation, of course, is being personified. It's as if creation could feel and think and have hope just like we do. And when Christ comes to rule, creation will rejoice along with us. The heavens will be glad. The sea will roar with jubilation. The field and the trees will sing for joy. Jesus will make everything and everyone right. This is our great hope, church. When we take the Lord's Supper, and oh, I pray that that's soon. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we are actually proclaiming that we're staking our lives on this hope that Jesus is going to return again and we will banquet with him in the new heavens and the new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where everything is right and good and perfect. Are you trusting in Him? Do you have your hopes set on His coming kingly rule? Church, don't settle for anything less than that. Don't put your ultimate hopes in politicians or money or earthly pleasures of any kind. Set your hopes on Christ's sure and certain rule that's coming. Live for Him. Worship Him. Proclaim Him. If you're not a Christian, there's still time. Jesus hasn't come back. The Lord's patient and His patience in waiting to return means more time for more people to bow the knee to Jesus, to step into kingdom citizenship, to step into worship of the true King, to repent and put their faith in Him, to give Him the glory due His name. He has provided the offering Himself. Will you be there with us? Will you receive what he's offering, I pray you do. The tone of this whole psalm is jubilation. It's joy because the church is singing about her king and we're calling the nations to come with the offering of Christ's cross and be received graciously by him. And we're looking forward to the day when all creation will rejoice Rejoice in King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We want to be gathering together week in and week out singing to you, Lord. Will you bring that about soon for us? And Lord, we want to be faithful in proclaiming your salvation day to day to the nations that are around us. Oh Lord, we live here in Dubai, a, a, a country and a city where there are almost 200 nations represented around us. They are our colleagues. They are our neighbors. Oh Lord, will you teach us? Will you lead us in telling about your son, the King, and inviting people to give him the glory due his name? 
And Lord, we look forward to that day. Our great hope is that we will be with you on that day when all creation rejoices. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.